0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome to today's Commonwealth Club presentation. My name is Dr. Patrick O'Reilly. I'm chair of the Psychology Forum, and I will be mo- uh, the moderator for today's talk. I'm genuinely pre- pleased to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Andrew Skull, who is educated at Oxford, Princeton, and University College London. He's the author of more than a dozen books on mental illness, And he's widely regarded as one of the world's leading historians of psychiatry. His most recent book, Psychiatry in Its Discontent, as you all know, is available in the lobby. Uh, At the end of his presentations, there'll be time for questions. For those watching online, if you have a question for Dr. Skull, please use the text chat feature, and as time allows, he will answer those questions. So without further ado, please welcome Dr.
2: Skull. Well, thank you very much. I'm actually, to, um, I'm actually going to talk about an even more recent book than A Psychiatry and Its Discontents, which is a collection of essays of mine. Uh, the most recent book is something that I started work on, if you can believe it, back in the early 1980s when I was in London at the, um, what was then the Wellcome Institute for the History of Medicine, on a Guggenheim Fellowship, and I became very interested in early 20th century American psychiatry, which was a period, as we'll see a bit later in the talk today, of um, what best, can best be called therapeutic experimentation on mental patients. But uh, the project stayed, I moved back and forth, I did work on it over the years. And gradually, um, I came to the realization that what I wanted to do was tell the story of American psychiatry from its very beginnings all the way down to the present. Uh, And I was glad I waited long past 1980, because 1980 turns out to be a rather critical turning point in the history of American psychiatry, and indeed in world psychiatry in some ways. Um, So that book uh, is called... Uh, Desperate Remedies, Uh, and its subtitle is Psychiatry's Turbulent Quest to Cure Mental Illness. So um, I've been working in this area, as one member of the audience who supervised my doctoral thesis will know, for about 50 years, which goes to show I'm getting rather ancient. Um, And Two projects really haunted me over the years alongside a lot of other books that I'd written. One was to try to understand the place of madness in a very broad historical way, all the way from ancient Greece and ancient Palestine and ancient China to now, and looking at it not just as a medical problem, which it often wasn't, but looking at this cultural resonance, its, it's resonance in religion, in politics and culture, even in music and literature and the arts. Uh, and that book appeared about seven years ago, and then I finally said, it's time to write Desperate Remedies. So the story really begins in the early 19th century, and it's a, it's a shift that occurs here in the United States at roughly the same time as it's also occurring in Western Europe. And it's a twofold thing. It's the movement that gives birth to psychiatry, although that name isn't yet used widely in Anglo-American circles. Uh, and it gives birth to a whole new way of approaching the problem of serious mental illness, which is to put people with serious mental illness in an institution. Okay. So the birth of the asylum and the birth of psychiatry are twin movements. They're rather a chicken and egg problem. Each creates the other, as it were. Um, and in the beginning, uh, the rise of the asylum, a word that acquires very negative connotations later on, is actually born in an atmosphere of almost utopian optimism. The idea is that a retreat, as many of these places were called after the pioneering York retreat in England, which opened in 1796, or as an asylum, a place where you could retreat from the cares of the world and the the pressures that were perhaps driving you mad. Um, And the idea was, in those small intimate institutions, and they were quite small, uh, you would go and you would be cured. And when I say there was a utopian optimism about that period, uh, the progenitors, those pushing for the asylum as a way of rescuing the mad from the attics and the jails, proclaimed that they could cure 60, 70, 80, perhaps even more than that, 80% of those who turned mentally ill if only they came into these therapeutic institutions early enough. And it was on that basis, partly in the United States through the remarkable efforts of uh, a moral entrepreneur called Dorothea Dix, a New England uh, Unitarian who traveled the United States and as a woman alone browbeat all these male good old boys even down south and shamed them into putting money into building asylums where she assured them they would cure all these patients and turn tax eaters. Into taxpayers again. Now, sadly, uh, although I think many of those early institutions had rather admirable records for a few years, once so-called moral treatment, which was a, what dominated these places, became routinized, it couldn't produce 60 or 70 let alone 80% of cures. More normally, somewhere between 30 or 40 percent of people recovered their wits sufficiently to move back into the community. What that meant from a simple arithmetical point of view is that every year, a large chunk of patients stayed behind, and the longer they stayed, the less likely it was they were going to exit in anything other than a pine box. So, over time. Asylums grew in size from the 30 patients that the York retreat started with to 1,000, to 2,000, to 5,000, to in the case of Milledgeville in Georgia, 14,000 patients, and through some hospitals on Long Island in the 20th century, more than that. So what was meant to be a small therapeutic institution became anything but. And the overwhelming bulk of the patients were not the new entrants who still in some cases, moved back out. But these long-stay chronic patients, who often stayed 5, 10, 15, 20. I once was at the hospital in my home county in in England, and their oldest patient died. And and this was in the early 1970s, and she'd been there since 1914. Wow. Okay, So um, a real problem arises if you're a psychiatrist. I should say, early in the century, they called themselves medical superintendents of asylums for the insane, which is rather a mouthful. Or sometimes they called themselves alienists after the French word, one of the French words for mad, aliené. But that German term by the late 19th century is beginning to be adopted. Um, At the same time, the profession is facing a crisis because it's promised 70 or 80% cures. It's delivered... What looks like almost nothing, because if you calculate cures on the whole numbers resident in these asylums, cure rates are ten or fifteen percent. Actually, more like thirty or forty percent. But that's not what the public perception is. It's the horde of the hopeless chronic patient that becomes the image of what happens if you become mentally ill, and the image indirectly of the asylum and of the profession that takes care of these people. So. It's a crisis of legitimacy. You have to, as a profession, explain why it is you're not curing these people. And the answer that emerged, not just here, but across the other side of the Atlantic as well, was to blame the victim. It was to assert that the mentally ill were, in fact, biologically degenerate. They were the problem of evolution run in reverse in the last third of the 19th century, of course, is the rise of evolutionary theory. So instead of evolution producing progress, in this case it had gone backwards. And these people had lost their human qualities, as one British psychiatrist put it. If they had been puppies, they would have been drowned in a horse pond. They were defective human beings, and the language was harsh and condemnatory, and the question was, if they were really such a menace, and if they lacked the capacity to control their behavior, which was part of the symptom of their madness, if released, they might breed like rabbits, and then the burden of mental illness would become greater and greater. So by the end of the 19th century, there were 100,000 patients roughly in America's asylums, They were condemned in this fashion. And the question was what to do. Well, if they were a danger left at large, that provided a rationale for locking them up and explained why the profession couldn't cure them because they were biologically unfit. But that was a very expensive proposition. And so um, other solutions were mooted. And the one that became popular in early 20th century America, and then as we'll see elsewhere, was to sterilize them against their will, involuntarily sterilize mental patients. And um, eventually that led to a test case going to the United States Supreme Court in 1927 Buck versus Bell. Uh, Buck was a poor, a poor uh, woman who'd actually been raped and was. Uh, pregnant, or then gave birth, and her child was adopted by the family of the rapist. Um, um, And anyway, so she was sterilized, and it went to the Supreme Court, and Oliver Wendell Holmes, who's allegedly one of America's great jurists, wrote the decision, an eight to one decision, saying, yes, the state had the right to eliminate the possibility of reproduction among these people. As he put it, three generations of idiots are enough. So that was one possible avenue that went along. And there were people here in the United States who said, well, you know, we should just kill them. They're they're subhuman. Fortunately, here, there were enough constraints, and in England as well, where similar ideas were floated by the eugenics crowd, to stop that happening. But what happened Next is in Nazi Germany, when Hitler came to power, he, first of all, passed a compulsory sterilization law, and they didn't mess around. California was the leading state sterilizing people, and it continued to do so until 1960. Um, But uh, California's law was cited by the Nazis as the inspiration for their own. And the superintendent of Stockton State Hospital, who happened to be a woman, rather unusual in those days, boasted that this in 1938, you know, this was a great thing and we should follow the Nazis' policies and be doing this more frequently. But the Nazis quickly reached the conclusion that um, keeping these useless eaters, as they called them in their propaganda, alive was foolish. And so with the active participation of most of the leading German psychiatrists of the period, none of whom were successfully prosecuted for what they did, they murdered about a quarter million patients. It was the mental patients who were the first victims of the final solution. That was where the gas chambers disguised as showers were invented. And that technology and those showers... And those technicians were then shipped to the death camps where they killed other useless subhumans in the Nazis' eyes. So that was one possible avenue that emerged out of optimism to pessimism to a sense that mental illness was rooted in the brain and in in people's bodies. But of course, in many ways, if you're a member of what claims to be a healing profession and you're generally genuinely committed along those lines, to either keep people locked up and be a glorified boarding housekeeper or, even worse, uh, to be involved in their murder is is not exactly um, a comfortable situation. And it was that, I think, that led to that period of experimentation I spoke about when, when I was chatting with some of you before this talk began. It's important to remember that in general medicine, uh, the late 19th, early 20th century was a time of genuinely great progress. It was the the discovery of germ theory. And emerging from germ theory, since there weren't yet antibiotics, there were some therapeutic breakthroughs, which I hesitate to to mention in today's climate, but they were things called vaccines. (laughs) And they headed off things like childhood diphtheria. For those of you who had the misfortune of reading Little Women, you'll you'll remember a description of somebody dying as the leather-like membrane chokes them to death. Horrific. And surgery, of course, once antisepsis and then asepsis was recognized, made great strides. And things that formerly would have killed you were now curable and curable quite fast. So medicine linked to the laboratory, linked to germ theory. Germ theory seemed to explain a lot of disease, even if we didn't yet know how to therapeutically attack it. Um, and so um, it was thought at the time that perhaps this was an overall explanation of all illness. Now psychiatrists have been left behind. They didn't have anything comparable. But it turned out They sort of did. Very early on in the rise of psychiatry, back in the 1820s in France, a French alienist observed that some patients seemed to fit a particular profile. They often thought they were Napoleon or Jesus or Mary, the mother of God, or the richest and sexiest man on the planet, Elon Musk. But, in fact, they um, they had uh, not only these um, strange psychiatric symptoms that didn't correspond in any way to reality, but they also had an accumulating set of neurological problems. They had difficulty articulating their words. They tended to stumble. They often involved a gait where they'd stamp their feet and widen their stance as they moved. Eventually they'd fall over a lot and then they'd become paralyzed and they usually died choking on their own vomit. It was a very nasty end. And that, disease, that kind of insanity was called general paralysis of the insane after its long-term effects. Some people thought that was the end of all cases of insanity if you lived so long. But as the century wore on, people were increasingly doubtful of that and thought it was something separate. And in the early 20th century, as part of this bacteriological revolution, we finally discovered, or they finally discovered, I should say, uh, what this really was. It was tertiary syphilis. So syphilis, when you're first infected with it, uh, is hard to ignore. You have a lot of very painful um, physical symptoms but then it goes underground and it often stays underground for a decade or two or even three sometimes it silently attacks the heart or other vital organs so you fall dead you know the banker in in town at 45 kills over from a heart attack oh it's overwork no actually it was the fact that he was infected by a prostitute back when he was in his 20s and um, this has killed him but more often Syphilis attacked the central nervous system, the spinal cord, and the brain, hence the neurological symptoms I've described, but also theorized. So here we have a model of a, one important sector of the mental, mental illness spectrum, and it was 20 or 25% of male admissions into New York asylums at the, at, in 1900. It was a very big deal, and it was infectious. Perhaps all of madness was infectious, and that was a theory adopted by arguably the most famous um, psychiatrist of the era, um, uh, a German called Kraepelin, who articulated the basic distinction between schizophrenia, or he called it dementia praecox, and manic depression, what we would now tend to call bipolar disorder, not quite exact, but close enough. Uh, And he came to the view that mental illness was probably infectious in origin. And one of the people who'd studied under him was a gentleman called Henry Cotton, who had trained under the leading American psychiatrist of the first 40 years of the 20th century, Adolf Meyer at Johns Hopkins, and had gone to Munich and trained there as well, and came back with this glittering resume and was appointed the director of the New Jersey State Mental Hospital in Trenton, New Jersey. And Cotton was determined to find a cure for mental illness, and he was convinced it was rooted in the body, and he became increasingly convinced that it was, all of it was caused by infection, by what he called focal sepsis. So somewhere in your body, maybe more than one where, Um, You have a lingering infection, which is pumping poisons, toxins, into your bloodstream and your lymph, which are then poisoning the brain. And depending on the kind of poisoning going on, your symptoms vary, but that's what causes you to go mad. So if you believe that and you don't have antibiotics to fight infection, what do you do? Well, you engage in what Henry called um, surgical bacteriology, or to put it another way, you rip the offending bits out. And he started with teeth, very close to the brain, and often rotten. And then tonsils, because that was another obvious site. And then patients refused to get better. Was this a bad theory? No, no. Look, they're swallowing the germs. Your mouth is full of all this stuff. You're swallowing it, and it's going down and infecting the rest of your body. And so he starts removing stomachs and spleens and colons and cervixes. Women were about 70 or 75% of his patients, and that's actually a very common feature of the things I'm going to talk about. Um, And he boasted he was curing 80% of his patients and rich people flocked from all over the country for this new miracle cure and demanded their own psychiatrists engage in this behavior. And he had some very powerful supporters. Now in reality, and I should say even in print, Cotton was disclosing that 30% of the patients who got abdominal surgery died. Actually, it was more like 45%. But who's quibbling. Nobody, but nobody said, hey, wait a minute, you're killing a third of your patients? There were people who objected and said he was too monomaniacal, that there were other causes at work, but obviously cleaning up focal sepsis was a good idea. And for uh, about 8 to 17 years, Cotton did his work until he killed over from a heart attack. Uh, and his mentor, Adolf Meyer, was asked to supervise the study to see whether he really was producing these results. And he sent along a woman assistant, whom I had the good fortune of interviewing, Phyllis Greenacre. And Phyllis spent a year and a half following up and said the more pa- of this treatment patients got, the worse the outcome. And there was a tense meeting where she tried to present these findings, and a belligerent Harry Cotton stormed away and Meyer suppressed the report. And when Cotton died, he wrote an obituary lamenting how sad it was that American psychiatry had been deprived prematurely of this wonderful person. Okay. So that's the first of the desperate remedies I would talk about. There were many, many others. Uh, giving malaria to people with tertiary, with tertiary syphilis, it turns out in vitro, in a test tube, um, the the organism that causes syphilis dies at about 105 106 degrees. So do we. <laughs> but if you give people malaria, you get a fever of about that, you can control it usually if you haven't given the wrong kind of malaria, and sometimes they did. Um, you you can cut it short with quinine, maybe. Uh, very very distressing. Um, Doctors at the time believed it worked. We have no conclusive evidence one way or the other, although I will say that we now know that the inventor of that approach, um, a Viennese uh, doctor, uh, confessed that his his 10 early cases were almost all a disaster. Uh, And it was on that basis that they spread everywhere. There were mosquito colonies sent through the mail And and hospitals sometimes use malaria blood from other patients with malaria, but since the test for syphilis wasn't 100% accurate, you sometimes gave those patients syphilis as well as giving them malaria. Um, So that won the Nobel Prize in medicine in 1927, one of two psychiatric interventions to win the Nobel Prize. There were lots of other experiments. One of the great discoveries of real, really, you know, a real, well, not quite a magic bullet, but a a really important medical advance in the 1920s was the discovery of insulin, which transformed diabetes from a death sentence for your child into a chronic illness. So genuinely extraordinary achievement. Very, very, very important. But it turns out if you get too much insulin, um, you go into diabetic shock, you, you go into a coma, because your blood sugar drops precipitously. And another bright spark named Manfred Sackle decided, well, you know, if we put mental patients into a coma, they were out of contact with the world for a period, and then they came back, and maybe you gave them a whole bunch of comas, 20 or 30, and he announced that cured 80% of schizophrenics. It was only in the 1950s when controlled studies were done that we learned that it didn't work at all. Another observation, another um, psychiatrist from Austro hungary a um, man named Moduna, decides that if you have epilepsy, you don't become schizophrenic, that there's some antagonism between the two. That's a false belief, but anyway, he believed it, and nobody questioned it. So he thought, well, if we could artificially give schizophrenics Epilepsy or epileptic seizures, that might cure them. And so he experimented with camphor, which produces abscesses and all kinds of nasty side effects. Uh, natural substances aren't always good for you, in case you're inclined to think they are. Uh, but he came up with a synthetic substitute, which was called metrazole here in the United States and cardiazol in Europe. And when you were injected with it, by his own account, you felt as though you were going to die. And then a minute or five minutes or ten minutes or an hour later while you were thinking you were going to die, you were on the brink of death, you would seize. And you would seize so violently that most of these patients fractured vertebrae in their backs and often fractured their hips as the long muscles cramped up and the bone was driven into the socket. But cured. Dear, oh dear. Um, Lots of American mental hospitals had metrazole clinics, Uh, but everybody was looking for some alternative, and that's how we got ECT, because ECT emerged in in Italy uh, by some gentleman who experimented on passing electricity through the body. Uh, Initially, with animals, they killed them because they had one electrode here and another one on the anus, and Electric charge went through the heart and stopped it. But then they went down to the slaughterhouse and they saw pigs being slaughtered and they were hung upside down. And as they came through, they were electrodes put on their head. They, they were rendered unconscious and then their throats were slit. They went, oh. And so they tried it on a vagrant they picked up in the Rome train station. And ECT was really cheap, really easy to administer Uh, And it became all the rage. Um, And it's still in use today, actually. Of all the things I'm talking about, it's one of the few that has survived. We still don't know why it works, if it works. Uh, There's much controversy about its effects on memory. But you can read any number of um, memoirs now. Uh, uh, Kitty Dukakis, uh, Al Gore's first wife, Tipper... Um, the, uh, the writer Simon Winchester who claimed that it saved their lives okay. and it's still used but it's not used for schizophrenia oddly enough um, it's used in cases of refractory depression okay. and then uh, there are others that I could talk about but the most dramatic of all I suppose is lobotomy which by a Portuguese neurologist uh, who couldn't perform the operation himself because his hands were crippled with arthritis, but who had a neurosurgeon bore holes in the skull and inject alcohol into the frontal lobes of the brain, where he claimed madness lay. And that, t- that operation was picked up by um, an American neurologist named Walter Freeman, who also had a neurosurgeon colleague. Neurosurgeons were a very rare commodity in, in that period. Um, but uh, Jim Watts initially performed the surgery, and they quickly decided alcohol was both destructive and hard to control. So they used something like a butter knife, and they scooped bits of the brain. Um, Freeman, after the war, wanted to become, as his daughter put it, the Henry Ford of lobotomy. And this operation here which was often done under local anesthetic, took too long and required very scarce neurosurgical skill. It was done under local anesthetic because the way you determined how much brain to cut uh, was you talked the patient through the operation. And when the patient started to become confused, you cut enough. And they made transcripts of this. And in, in Desperate Remedies, one of the chapters on lobotomy opens with a quite horrific transcript of one of these operations taking place and the patient several times telling them to stop and being ignored, which is symptomatic of a much broader problem that we'll we maybe discuss in the question and answer period. Uh, mental patients had lost all their civil rights. They were shut up in a double sense. They were locked away and nobody listened because whatever they said, it was the product of their madness. So lobotomy also wins the Nobel Prize in medicine in 1949, some 14 years after the first lobotomy. It continues into the 1950s. It gradually fades away, largely as a result of generational change because the advocates of it continue to do it as long as they are around. But something else has emerged um, that in a certain sense looks more medical and replaces it. So... I've got to be fairly quick because we've got about 15 minutes more for me to talk and I've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, That biological series of interventions and that insistence that mental illness is rooted in the body and is the result of brain damage comes under some questioning during World War II. Rather like World War I, it turns out when you put people into combat, they see and do absolutely terrible things. And many of them find that they mentally can't stand it. In World War I, it was called shell shock. World War II, it was called combat neurosis or combat exhaustion to try and pretend it was just a matter of getting too tired. Um, psychiatric casualties in World War II for America were three times as high as in World War I. So it's just a huge problem. And the army had to find a solution. It it had thought it had headed off the problem because psychiatrists screened all the recruits into the army in uh, 1941, and it rejected 1.7 million of them as psychiatrically unfit. So now we would have fit people so they wouldn't break down. But they did. And now you needed to fix the problem. This was not a problem caused by biology. This was a problem caused by obviously trauma. And the best treatments they could muster were psychotherapeutic, to give them a very fancy name for often what was not much more than coffee, sort of an American version of tea and sympathy some coffee, a cigarette, and get back and fight with your mates. Mm-hmm. So after the war, so they quickly trained a lot of people, quick and dirty, as you did surgeons in the war, because you needed them quickly. You couldn't wait five years for somebody to qualify. After the war, these people wanted to continue. And American psychiatry, for the first time, became heavily psychoanalytic. That was when Freud's ideas came to the fore, both in the culture, Hollywood movies, plays, books you name it, universities, social sciences all adopted Freudian ideas, Um, but also a much broader psychiatric marketplace out there for outpatients with um, mental disturbance. And that Freudian dominance of the universities, the training, and the high-priced, prestigious branch of profession lasted for about a quarter century. However, there's still most of the mental patients are in the mental hospitals still. In 1950, half a million of them. By 1955, which is the peak year, 560,000 on a given day. Lots and lots of people. That's now the despised branch of the profession. And many of them are doctors brought from abroad who aren't licensed to practice anywhere else, so they're kind of trapped in the hospital the same way the patients are, right? Right. But it's there that the, huge, the next huge revolution in psychiatry incubates and starts. Because what happens purely by accident, nobody thought there could be drugs to cure mental illness or intervene effectively in mental illness. They'd used opiates to calm people down and barbiturates to put them to sleep. But a French company discovers... Phenothiazine, which had lain around since the 1880s in the German chemical industry. And they try it out for a bunch of things. Itchy skin, psoriasis. Uh, It's an antiemetic. It's advertised in pediatric journals in the 1950s as a treatment for your child if they're throwing up. When you know about its side effects, you wouldn't be too thrilled about that thought in retrospect. Uh, But it also, by accident, somebody tries it on mental patients and they say, oh, it's a chemical lobotomy. It calms them right down. And that launches what became, which, what come to be called antipsychotic drugs, the first of which is Thorazine in this country, or Logactyl, as it's called in Europe, meaning mighty drug. Um, and shortly thereafter, we get minor tranquilizers, um, Miltown and Librium and Valium, for those of you from an older generation, like me. Um, And then antidepressants, which again are discovered purely by accident. Uh, They're testing a drug to possibly treat tuberculosis. Now, serious tuberculosis is a very grim disease with a very grim prognosis. And they give these tuberculous patients this pill, and they start dancing around, and they're all happy. right? So that's how we get the first antidepressant. So drugs come on the scene, psychoanalysts and their fellow travelers either don't use them or say, well, they're useful because they bring people so that they're ready for the real work of psychotherapy. But it eats away at the foundations of psychoanalysis, which turns out not to be, well, whatever you think of it, with serious mental illness, it's not terribly effective, let me put it that way. It's also not very practical if you're trying to treat half a million patients. So, um, where do we go from there? Well, I have about seven minutes, so I need to talk about several critical developments which which flow on. Psychoanalysts aren't interested in diagnosis; they regard it as a trivial problem. It, you know, um, putting labels on people. Everybody's different. You all have the author your underlying psychological problems, and that's what we've got to focus on. So calling somebody this or that doesn't make any any difference. But the problem is um, people do get psychiatric labels, and a growing body of evidence, which at first is only known about within the profession and within a small segment of the profession, when they do studies seeing whether if you as a patient go to see that psychiatrist and that psychiatrist and that, are you going to be given the same label? The answer is no, you're not. Or very, very, it's very, very unlikely. Um, there was a study done comparing, uh, which appeared in 1970, comparing diagnostic practices in London and New York. And in New York, 65% of the patients were schizophrenic. Same patients. In London, 20%. Uh, In London, 40% of the patients had manic-depressive illness. In America, 10%. Now, you wouldn't get diagnosed as having tuberculosis in New York and pneumonia in London, right? This is pretty devastating stuff, but it's in an academic monograph. So mm, starting to raise worries, and psychiatry is coming under increasing criticism from people like Thomas Saz who are saying mental illness is a myth... But what really breaks that through to, to the public at large is a study performed by a Stanford social psychologist named David Rosenhan, which appears in the pages of Science, the leading, along with Nature, the leading general journal for scientists, and one that journalists mine for stories all the time. And this study by Rosenhan is called On Being Sane in Insane Places. And he says, look, I sent along... Eight patients, one of them is actually him. And they went to 12 different mental hospitals and they were told they were being screened to make sure they were actually perfectly normal people. But they were told to go in and say they were hearing voices thud and empty and hollow. And then once admitted, they were to act normally and see what happened. All of them admitted, according to him, all of them given the diagnosis of schizophrenia, except the one sent to a ritzy private hospital, who's given the more gentle diagnosis of manic-depressive illness. And supposedly there for um, weeks, in one case for uh, two months. Furore. American Psychiatric Association is petrified. They call an emergency meeting within three weeks. They decide they better revamp their, their procedure for diagnosing mental illness. And um, they better make sure that if two psychiatrists seem the same patient, they're going to reach the same diagnosis. That's called reliability. That's different from validity. It doesn't mean necessarily because you give the same person the same label, they actually have the same thing, right? Uh, or that your label corresponds to something out there in the real world. But that's what happened. Uh, and in 1980, uh, what was, what's called DSM-3, or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatrics Association, third edition, really big title, so DSM-3 works much better, came on the scene and it really provoked a revolution. It put psychi- uh, psychoanalysis basically to an end, Um, Within a few years, it became a tiny minority and lost all its power in medical schools. Um, And it really launched a biological revolution, particularly once it hooked up with um, drug treatment and and, um, psychopharmacology. Um, Interestingly, um, a friend of mine, an investigative journalist called Susanna Cahalan, um, reinvestigated things and showed with about 99.99% accu- uh, accuracy, even after all these years, that Rosenzahn's study was one of the great scientific frauds of the 20th century. It doesn't matter now, because he's dead, and the effect of that study lingers. It, it blew things up, and it brought, us, it brought about a psychiatric revolution. So we moved into a period where... Um, Mental illness once again was seen as rooted in the brain. It's a brain disease. We're all taught that. And pretty soon we're being told um, it's dopamine, one of the newly discovered neurotransmitters in the brain, that is what causes schizophrenia. And serotonin, another one, is what causes you to be depressed, Tipper Gore in her book says, I learned that, you know, it's like you need a certain amount of serotonin sloshing around here, or otherwise you get very unhappy. It's like in a car when you run out of gas. Scientific nonsense, wonderful marketing copy. Most people still believe it, including many physicians. Um, And it has become the, the kind of underpinning of a different approach, so for mental patients' families, during the Freudian era, people were told the reason your child is autistic or the reason they 've become schizophrenic is because you 're terrible parents, and especially your terrible mothers, you are refrigerator mothers, you have no uh, emotional pull to your children, and you 've driven them mad. And then someone else comes along and says, no, 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 it's not your fault at all. It's just biochemistry. It's just, you know, unfortunate part of your brain. It's very clear which of those approaches you're liable to embrace. And drugs have become the centerpiece of psychiatric practice now for good or ill. And it's a mixed picture. I'm happy to talk about that, but I don't have sufficient time right now, but um, the other side of the coin is psychotherapy hasn't disappeared entirely, Uh, and people's medical insurance often covers a bit of it, which is important, but it doesn't pay sufficiently for people with an MD to do it. So what's happened? It's become the prerogative of social workers and clinical psychologists, often female, who take a lesser amount of money and who treat um, many of the disorders that we're, we're talking about. Um, and so you have a bifurcated approach, which which sort of neat, almost neatly maps into the training of these particular people. It's also the case that for the last 30 years at least, NIMH, the paymaster of academic psychiatry along with the drug industry, uh, has pursued the notion that the sole and singular cause of mental illness is to be found in neuroscience and genetics. And that's what uh, Tom Insel, for example, who retired as uh, director of NMIH about seven years ago, pursued, and his successor, who specializes in studying uh, the brains of mice. Um, that's, the, that's the avenues they've pursued. When Insel stepped down in 2015, he gave an interview and he said, you know, I've spent a lot of money and I've funded some really cool science. And he said, I think I've spent about $20 billion. And he said, the needle for people with mental illness hasn't moved a bit. We're no closer to curing them. They die 25 years younger than the rest of us. Ah, isn't that a shame? Well, I suggest it might be time for a rethink about how we approach the problem. Uh, Not to deny the importance of continuing to do some basic science, but there's a lot of more complicated stuff that's involved with mental illness. It's very much a social and a psychological phenomenon as well as a biological one. In fact, separating those is, is, is really silly. Our brain's aren't the same now as they were when we were born. They're a product of our experience. Human brains remain plastic for decades. And as you experience things, your brain biology changes, right? So nurture and nature (coughs) intrinsically bound together. Um, We need, it seems to me, more effective ways of helping families cope. We need more effective ways of providing sheltered housing and social supports for people who, because of their disabilities, can't possibly provide them for ourselves. And that's a political issue. Um, But um, one, I'm sad to say, I don't see much prospect of real change happening on those lines. So anyway, that very broad compass, if you really want to uh, understand this in, in more than this glib fashion that I've done for 45 minutes, do please read the book. I'm sorry my publishers didn't manage to send some copies along. Um, but you can, you can buy it on Amazon quite easily, or even better, from your local bookshop and support um, bookshops, which I really like to okay. do.
1: Well, uh, Dr. Skull, I want to thank you. That was absolutely wonderful. And uh, if anybody has any questions, uh, I have a microphone here. Uh, no? Well, oh, oh, a couple. I just ask that you uh, speak really close to it uh, so that the people online can hear your question as well. Just a few inches away. How familiar are you with the? um, Is it working? Let's see. Let's see. Yeah. It is. Yep, it is now, Okay. Right, right there.
2: How familiar are you with the value of peer support or peer specialists? Mm-hmm. Well, Request. there are a variety of things that can, you know. First of all, one thing I, I want to say right now. I am not a clinician. I'm not clinically qualified. I'm not giving anybody any advice on what you should do. Um, my reading of, of that is the best we can do right now is provide things that help even though they don't cure. For some patients, drugs work reasonably well, Um, both uh, antidepressants and antipsychotics. Antipsychotics don't tackle the so-called negative symptoms of schizophrenia, the apathy, the social withdrawal, the um, flatness of emotion, and the language problems. Uh, But they do damp down, for example, the delusions and hallucinations. But they come at a heavy price because the side effects of these drugs are are very, very serious and often outweigh whatever benefit they they give you. Um, So in the absence of cure. And the same thing can be said when I look at the literature on cognitive behavioral therapy or psychodynamic therapy or any of a number of other possible approaches. None of them are, can be described as useless, but none of them provide reliable cure. They sometimes help. For some people, they're important. Uh, for many people, they don't work. Um, things like peer support a very important way of alleviating some of the problems that I've been talking about. So I certainly, uh, think, um, it'd be wrong to dismiss that. Just as I think it's wrong to join the Scientologists and dismiss psychiatry as simply a poisonous enterprise. Um, it, it has very severe drawbacks. It has real limitations. Uh, and it often has been complicit in horrors as I've described. Um, but yet, for some patients, it offers some relief.
1: Okay. Thank you. you
2: have, mm-hmm. any, all right. we just have to put
1: it pretty close to your mouth.
2: Um, I don't remember the exact name of it, but it's mm-hmm. the transcranial magnus instead of yeah, ECT. Yeah. Do you know anything about that? Uh, yeah. There are a lot of these things floating around now. That's a relatively non-invasive kind of approach. Um, There's another approach lurking about out there uh, called um, DBS or deep brain stimulation which involves actually implanting electrodes in different regions of the brain because different people think different regions control depression. Uh, That's received a lot of media coverage when it was put to a controlled trial, actually two controlled trials by the manufacturers of these devices. The trials were ended early because they were a disaster. But they still con- uh, approach still continues to have its enthusiasts. Uh, now we're in the era of um, psychedelics and magic mushrooms, uh, or uh, ketamine or esketamine, which can be uh, uh, nasally, right? and there are whole you know yeah those things affect people's um, mentality. Uh, that's why they're party drugs. Mm-hmm. What their long term effects are going to be, we don't know, and my skepticism would be rooted in all these other things, some of which I've described to tonight, where you see enthusiastic reports from patients and from the the, the people touting these new approaches, which, as time goes on, um, drop away. Um, and so I, you know, I'm afraid. The, I think we shouldn't dismiss everything, but at the same time. It, one of the lessons is beware enthusiasts and be, be skeptical when you're told some miracle has arrived.
0: Uh, thank you. That was a, uh, a wonderful talk. Um, it could even make a, a thesis advisor proud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, well. Uh, back in the days when I was looking into this topic, uh, I remember reading a very interesting account of the York Retreat, which was at the, I think in the late 18th century. Do I have the date right? Yes. And what set it apart from everything you've described is that they made, it was established by the Quakers. Yes. And it made no effort to cure. Right. Simply be nice. Yeah. That. That's yeah. basically. Yeah. That was basically it. I wonder, because what you said at the very end starts to take things in that direction. Mm. Uh, and I wonder if you have any comment about that. Well,
2: I think one of the many problems that have come upon us by this overemphasis on somatic approaches, is this neglect of the human needs of the people we're talking about. Um, And those needs, I mean, asylums, as awful as they often became, provided a roof over somebody's head. They provided food. They provided um, some occupational interest for some of the patients. Um, When deinstitutionalization came along, it was hailed as community care. Well, there's no community and there's no care, and you wander around the streets out here and you'll see exactly what I mean. Yeah. Uh, I addressed this problem three or four years back and the American Psychiatric Association had this meeting here, and literally the psychiatrist coming into the to the convention center were stepping over mental patients in the gutter. Um, so... Yes, I, I, I do think that is obviously a huge missing portion here. Um, remember, in 1950, 30% of the New York State current budget, not their capital budget, their current budget, was spent on mental hospitals. 30%, right? When New York State shut those hospitals, that money didn't migrate over. We're spending it in a different way. We're spending it because the largest single places of of, uh, care, if that's the right word, for mentally ill patients these days are the Los Angeles County Jail, the Cook County Jail in Chicago and Rikers Island in New York. So, you know, Dorothea Dix was rescuing them from the prison to put them in the asylum, and we've chucked them out of the asylum when we're putting them back in the prison. Are you aware of Donald Reagan? Ronald Reagan. Yes. It happened very fast. Yeah. Um, yes, my very first book was on that subject. Actually, It's called Decarceration. And it appeared in 1977. And I, I have to say, it predicted much of what we see yeah, now. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh,
1: we have the last question here, and I have a few from your online audience. So
2: Happy to talk so, as long as you have time so for me.
1: i like you...
0: Testing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd like you, if possible, to elaborate a little bit on your idea of what mental I- illness is, it seems like you are uncomfortable with kind of a purely biological mm. disease model and also kind of uncomfortable with the Sazian approach. So how would you define mm. um, mental illness? Okay.
2: Well, you're asking, I think two, two separate things there. Um, you you're asking me to talk about what mental illness is and where it comes from. And those are two completely separate issues. What I would say about where mental illness comes from is that with respect to the major mental illnesses that we're talking about, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, major depression, the honest answer is we don't know. And after all the research we've done, that is still the honest response on that point. If we don't know where it comes from, how do we know what it is? Well, for a long time, and still really, I think in the DSMs, the latest one, makes some feeble effort to move away from this. The idea is there's mental illnesses, which are discrete things. Schizophrenia is different from manic depression. from bipolar disorder is different again from depression. And they're very di- and then there's the rest of us. But in fact, in my view, uh, a dimensional view of the problem is much more sensible. That is, um, there are very extreme states, the kind of thing I used to when I was teaching classes refer to as bedlam madness, the kind of thing that got people locked up. Mm-hmm. And then... There are varying degrees of things that become eccentricity, that become normal variation of character, but nonetheless cause some distress sometimes to people. And where you draw the lines is a social process, and it varies depending on the time and the culture and the arrangements that we have. Um, the one thing I would insist on is the degree of suffering that comes with mental illness. One of my friends and fellow, um, psychiatric historians, a man named Michael McDonald, who's sadly dying of cancer, uh, once put it very well. He was studying a, an English priest, come astrologer, come doctor, who specialized in madness in, in the 17th century. And he said, madness for those suffering from it is often the most solitary of afflictions. And for all of those around them, it's the most social of maladies. And I think that's a profound truth. Very often madness cuts people off. They no longer share the same mental universe as the rest of us. When we're talking about it, it's it's an amorphous thing. There are people whose cognitive abilities are all skewed, whose ways of perceiving the world are so different from ours that we can't, you know, there's no way to correct their delusions No matter whatever that you present, they still say, I'm Jesus, right? Um, It just doesn't matter. There are other people whose emotional life is so out of control, so at odds with what we see, people who are comfortably circumstanced and are just miserable beyond belief, um, withdrawn, unhappy, Uh, unable to eat, unable to motivate themselves to do anything. And there are people whose mental life is a blank. Alzheimer's victims, for example. And so there are a lot of varieties here. But I think the basic thing is to see these things as something of a continuum Uh, and to realize that socially we have to make judgments about where somebody on that continuum is so out of touch or so suffering so badly that intervention's called for. And sometimes that intervention has to be, and this is a very tricky topic, um, not something they invite themselves. And, uh, and doctor, we have two final questions.
1: Uh, sure. Go ahead, Patrick. And yes. incidentally, the books his book is a wonderful book. It is still yeah. out in the lobby. I pass yeah. that on to you. Uh, the first question is Do you think it would help if we had more ability to mandate medication against patients because so many patients with serious mental illness refuse medication?
0: Mm.
2: That's an enormously difficult question to answer in the abstract or globally. And the reason I say that is that um, the drugs we have provide symptomatic relief at best. And as is true of any medicine you take, there's no free lunch. Drugs have the effect we like, and they usually have some other effects. And some of those effects are relatively trivial, and sometimes those effects are quite profound. So antipsychotics produce um, neurological disorders which are irremovable once you discontinue them, which lay people often sit, uh, interpret as signs of madness. People grimacing, twitching, making clacking no it or not, right? Those, that's a condition called tardive dyskinesia. Or you become incurably restless, or you, you develop Parkinson like sy- symptoms. So there are real reasons to worry about this. When in, ni- in 2005, NIMH started. Bonsted a study that compared three modern antipsychotics with a first-generation antipsychotic and gave them to patients in a controlled setting. There were two results that were quite remarkable. One was that the new drugs were no better than the old one, although they cost multiple times as much. The second thing was among those patients, between 67 and 82 percent, depending on which of the four drugs they were on, dropped out of the study because the drugs didn't work or the side effects were intolerable. So, forcing people to have medication, very tricky uh, because it does, you know, it can alleviate symptoms, and sometimes people are better, and once they start to feel better, they discontinue and the problems recur. But it's very hard to say to somebody when we don't know whether you're going to be a responder. That's the other problem. Um, Some people respond well with minimal side effects. But going in, you don't know which of those categories you're going to be in. Whether you're going to respond, respond but have bad side effects, or not respond and have bad side effects. The latter group, obviously, they are, you know what the answer is. And
1: I want to say the uh, the last question is particularly poignant, I think. Uh, <laughs> any ideas how we can help families earlier in the process before they get so burned out,
2: which <laughs> leads to homelessness, yeah. severely mentally ill? Well, somebody referred to Reagan turfing everybody out. Um, I think, you know... Uh, It's not as though I have easy answers to what is obviously an enormously complicated problem. But if we're gonna ask families to cope, and it genuinely is an enormous burden if you have a schizophrenic son or daughter, uh, we have to provide respite care. We have to provide some supports for them, possibly monetary, but also social support, something that allows them some relief from what's a 24-7 ongoing problem, day after day. It's no wonder people give up. Um, so I think respite care w- would, would help, um, and I wish there were more of it. And it might. It wouldn't stop the homelessness problem, but it might enable some patients to live with their families. And that burden, I should say, again, disproportionately falls on what? On women. They're the ones that move out of the workforce to care for the yeah. disabled person. It's their lives that suffer the most. But all of the family is turned upside down. If you have a, a mentally ill sibling, your life is burdened by that. It's, it, it really is. That's the, the most social of maladies side of things. Okay, well, okay. Uh, Dr. Skull, your talk was absolutely wonderful. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Patrick, and thank you for being such a lovely audience. Um, I hope I said a few things that that maybe uh, made some sense to you. And uh, Honestly, if you do want to explore them further, the the book's been getting a rather nice press, I'm glad to say. (laughs) But um, I'm always happy to get more readers. Get your local library to order it if you don't want to have to buy it. (laughs) It's called Desperate Remedies. Desperate Remedies, yeah. Uh, it reflects this ambiguous title because the desperation is the patients the families the doctors but the remedies also are desperate in another sense they're often out of the box silly and harmful mm. okay thank you so much thank you. Mm-hmm. thank you
0: you've been listening to the commonwealth club of california Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.